week of December 17th, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 642, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Gilt Sperling. We're going to have a great show this week. We always do. We always make do our best to pack it full of fun stuff. But well, I'll tell you, next week, it's going to be crazy. Next week, the episode that's going to be uh, for the week ending December 24th, um, it's amazing. We've got Taylor Swift as our featured guest. She's obviously got the biggest tour of all time, and she's got news to spare with us about her movie plans. Spoiler, it's not just concert films. Then for Inside Baseball, we've got Bob Iger. He's like, I'm not coming on your show. You guys are so mean to me. We're like, Bob, we ask tough questions. But you need to be asked tough questions so you can give smart answers. And he's like, all right, all right, I'll be on the show. And to wrap it up, we've got uh, Sufjan Stevens, one of my favorite acts. He's here to sing a Christmas song, a new original Christmas song. We hope it's going to be the beginning of an annual tradition here at Showbiz Sandbox. That's all next week on Showbiz Sandbox. Yes, and uh, you know it's funny that you should mention Bob Iger because we actually had to bump Ted Sarandos for that. Uh, we were going to have him on, and, uh, and and we we had to delay, of course, David Zaslov's appearance for that very same reason. I can't wait for next week's episode. Oh wait, actually, I'm just looking at my calendar. Next week. Oh no wonder they all agreed. It's December twenty fifth. <laughs> They want to get away from Anything their families? What's going on on that day? <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. So is, yeah, exactly. Is there no show next week? No show next week, but, uh, you know, the, the, the following week on January 2nd, we could probably do a little, uh, you know, we could get together for the new year. So apparently I have to call back Taylor Swift, Bob Iger, and Sufjan Stevens. I uh, hope you're getting better, Sufjan, uh, and tell them all thanks, but no thanks. Great, Sperling. Thanks for telling me. So, yes. Or no, we can try to reschedule them for January 2nd. I wonder if they'll be available for the reschedule. <laughs> I don't know. I think her tour starts back up again, so it's not going to work. But anyway, uh, next oh. week, no show. The following week, we may record on a Tuesday rather than a Monday. Uh, so that week will be a little late. We'll try to get out quickly. If something goes wrong, we may have two weeks off. We hope not, but Christmas uh, and New Year's fall on bad days uh, for us and for the movie industry. They hate Christmas on a Monday. That's not a convenient day when you want people to go to the movies all night long. Uh, but, you know, you're going to go shopping, you're going to be doing stuff, and you're going to be listening to Christmas carols. Last week, we told you, Mariah Carey, she sent flowers to Brenda Lee, who finally topped the charts with Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. This week, however... After two weeks on top, boom, Brenda Lee, 78, get out of the way. Mariah Carey is back on top with All I Want for Christmas is You. That's how you do it when you're the queen of Christmas in Westeros. <laughs> you just kick the other woman out of the way. Um, have you ever seen her in concert? Uh, Mariah Carey? Yeah. Or Brenda no, Lee? No, I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, I have not either. I, no, I Brenda actually... Lee, I certainly haven't, but... I I have seen, uh, of course, I've met Mariah Carey uh, numerous times, but for the weirdest reasons. Of course. Uh, including at Sundance. Uh, no, no, it was just, uh, you know, well, she was doing movies and press. and Well, that's uh, not weird at all, then. I, yeah, I get, well, at Sundance, she showed up two hours late for a press conference. We Holy. waited two hours. Does she and think she's way, Madonna? Worst, worst part of that story? Worst part of that story. I was the one that organized the press conference. Oh, it was horrible. It oh. was one of it was one of the worst oh experience Sundance experiences. And do you remember what movie that might what, be for? Was it Glitter? It was for Precious. Oh, okay. Which okay. was called something else at the time. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that was a big success, though. Mariah Carey didn't help with that one, though. Was she a producer on it? I forget what she did. Oh, no, of course not. Yeah. No, she was in it. Yeah, she yeah. She was in it. And in fact, I knew at some point I told, that was when I told Monique. Uh, but she uh, was good. She came in, she walked, she was good and she won the Academy Award for no, that No, no, no. Mariah I, I, Carey I, I, was good, too. I'm sorry to talk over you. Mariah Carey was oh, well, pretty yes. good, too. Yeah. Yes, and I, I, so uh, the press conference was uh, kind of just gearing up. You know, people were arriving for it. She shows up, and she, Monique says, how'd you like the film? I said, um, well, I know uh, we don't, you know, we're, it's pretty early in the year. It's January, but what are you doing next March and April? I might clear your calendar for the first quarter of next year. You might be a little busy. 
And she just said, oh, that's very kind of you. Kind of like saying, hey, yeah, you're going to yeah. be not, you know, you're going to have a lot of, uh, and she said, oh, that's very kind of you and very nice of you. Sure enough, she goes on to win the Academy Award. I had no, I, I just thought if people see this film, they'll, and Precious is the name of the film, they will love her in it and, and she will get a lot of accolades. I did not think that she would actually go on to win the award. Uh, that said, I knew that people really liked the film because an hour and a half into waiting for Mariah Carey to show up, <laughs> people, all the press was still there. I was like, wow, either they really want Mariah Carey or this film is actually pretty good. Or they, she's one of the biggest stars in the world and rarely does press, so this was their one chance to see her and talk to her. True. There's yes. that too. Yeah, And they had... Uh, yeah, they they had um, Lenny Kravitz to talk to the whole time as well. So for an hour and a half, because he was there. Well, yeah, I yeah. mean, he was just so Lenny. About, tell me yeah. about your childhood. You know, I mean. <laughs> anyway, I've never seen her in concert, but I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't. I've never seen Manhattan transfer in concert either. But Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the great basketball player and very good. Uh, writer, author, newsletter writer, pontificator. Uh, he went to see them at their final show, a big tribute final, goodbye to Manhattan transfer show. And sadly, he fell and broke his hip. So that's a shame. So best wishes to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I really like his newsletter. I wish I could afford the whole thing, but I read the one, the stuff that's accessible for free. And we've got a link in our show notes if you want to check him out. He is an excellent uh, writer and has won awards for his writing on the newsletter and just recently in one of the LA media awards uh, it's at substack and we have a link in our show notes so you know check that out but that's what we're gonna you know talk about in a couple weeks from now what's happened this week what else is going on at showbiz sandbox well before i answer that question um yes he won the national so national arts and entertainment journalism award uh for i think best column uh and he and that was the LA Press Club gives this national award out. I was nominated for two of them, uh, and uh, Variety beat me out on one of them, came in second place, and the other one I got second place as well. So, uh, but wound up beating out Variety. They announced your runner-up status. So, they say the winner and the runner-up. Yes. Oh, very good. Congratulations. How shy, how how modest you are not to even mention the fact that you were nominated for your newsletter for exhibition or what was it for? It was for uh, a piece on uh, Cineworld's bankruptcy last year that appeared in Celluloid Junkie, and uh, we won for hard news and for analysis commentary. Terrific. You won second place for those so, two things. Yes. You won, uh, you won a commendation. That's awesome. Nothing. That's, that's terrific. There's thousands of media outlets, and, you, and you, you got recognized. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, that said, um, I wish I had gone. To the uh, event, I was at the Red Sea instead, uh, because of course Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was there <laughs> to receive an award <laughs> uh, pre-falling down. Yeah, so seriously, I hope he pre, does yeah. well because he's a uh, he's a real talent. Yeah, but you asked what what's happening uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox. Well, we are shopping like crazy and baking holiday treats because you know that's just kind of what we do around this time of year. Uh, what, and we're doing that when we're not watching endless marathons of Hallmark Christmas movies. Okay, we're keeping an eye on the box office as well and other events in what is turning into a pretty quiet news cycle for the entertainment business, which might be why Netflix did what it did. But anyway, we should be predicting blockbusters for next year, but, eh, you know. Happily, we can take our minds off things with award season. Finally, we've got some Guild Awards activity to discuss. And I just mentioned Netflix. Well, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at Netflix's data dump of audience info. It was confusing, exhilarating, frustrating, and lots of other ings too. In fact, it was all anybody could talk about last week. Here they were talking about it. Yes, I, I was wondering if you were going to correct me, and I wish I could literally, as I speak, I wish I could place bets in Las Vegas on whether Michael will respond with a certain, uh, and you did. You, I, I knew you were going to say, hey, you could have said talking, Keep because going. then that would have inged it up. If anybody's still listening at this point. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> Ten minute intro. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. I'm not the one with the award, so I don't get extraordinaire. I guess you do from now on. You know what? Can I, can I tell you? I was like, I said, 
I lost my place in reading. Did I say a couple times? I don't a couple, say extra- a couple times you did. <laughs> Skipped over a line about we're worried box office won't hit nine billion dollars in North America for the year. Instead of wondering which movies will be hits in the holiday season, oh. I won't criticize you for messing up on the intro because I wrote it about two minutes before we went on the air. Anyway, we're looking at box office around the world next week. You can check on Showbiz Sandbox. We will post the box office for the for the you know the Christmas week, uh, the stuff coming out the week leading up to Christmas. I'll post box office info on there for you to check out if you're interested because we're the only ones who give you the total week's box office for movies all around the world. And we get links from Comscore and we get information from Variety, Hollywood Reporter, all the trades, a different charts all over the world. And the number one film is in fact Wonka. Wonka made $108 million this week. It's at $150 million worldwide. Cute little Timothy Chalamet is bringing them into the box office, especially young people. He is a big star for young people. He has opened this movie because I don't think Wonka is enough of a draw on its own. I really think Timothy Chalamet put this one over the top. We'll have to see where it ends up, but it's, it's a great start. Will it get to $375 million? I think so. It's not going to fall off a cliff. Not great reviews, but not disastrous. And the audiences are enjoying it. And family-friendly movies like this tend to have a strong multiple. We'll have to see where it ends up. But Paul King, the king of Paddington movies, he's got another hit on his hands. And number two around the world is yeah. Enemy. I mean, a lot of people were saying, "Oh my God, it's only thirty nine million dollars." And look at the other two; they they opened to like a hundred something million. Well, first of all, they opened during the summer, so let's start there. Okay, they also start Johnny Depp. Uh, I will say that my daughter who works at the local movie theater, which uh, this past week, the city of Calabasas decided they were going to uh, allow a development to come in and knock it down because all cities on the rise knock down movie theaters and replace them with apartment buildings. That's smart. Um, they, uh, she said they called her last minute on Saturday and said, yeah, you don't need to come in. Wonka isn't doing that well. I have a feeling that had more of a reflection of the movie theater that it was than the actual film. Well, we know it was doing well around the country. That's interesting. They, they, they were anticipating even more people because we've had good numbers on this movie. If anything, the numbers have improved over the last week in tracking and then every day on the weekend. So, yeah, that that that's definitely yeah. a reflection of that theater. But anyway, Wonka made $108 million worldwide. Endless Journey is a Chinese drama based on a true story. That made $25 million this week. It's at $35 million and counting. The Hunger Games prequel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, another $22 million. And yes, it has tripled its budget. It's now at $300 million worldwide. So there will be more Hunger Games prequels. That is for sure. Wish, however, Disney wishes Wish needed a prequel or a sequel or any sort of quill because the Disney animated film Wish is falling fast. $20 million this week, $126 million worldwide. Uh, It is doing better overseas. It's having some decent holds. It's not going to end up, I think, like Elemental, uh, but maybe there's more territories to come. Again, I wish I had that little graph showing me how much of the world a movie has opened up in every week so I could know, is 70% of the world left? Is 30% of the world left? 20%, you know, it would be really useful to know. Someone get on that. But that's at $125 million worldwide. It's not going to get within a mile of $600 million, uh, the way Elemental got close to it back in the day. Ridley Scott's Napoleon is proving his Waterloo. Every director seems to founder when it comes to Napoleon, uh, Ridley Scott, uh, Stanley Kubrick, you name it. This biopic made $17 million this week. It's at $188 million worldwide. Godzilla Minus One. Have you seen one. the film? No, I have not. And I have a free monthly yeah, I, movie I really pass. want to. I don't really want to. I, I feel a vague obligation to, but it's been decades since he made a movie I really liked, so I'm just not filling that pool. You know, if it was like Killers of the Flower Moon, which I don't have a lot of interest in, but he's winning end of season awards, so I really feel obligated to. There was no good movie time for me for that epic film. And so I guess I'm waiting until it comes out on Apple. I would have gone to see it if there was a screening at like 7.15, you know. But when it's 6 p.m. and 9, you know, I don't want to get out of the theater at 1 in the morning. So it just wasn't working for me. I'm sure Napoleon has some worthwhile elements to it. The battle scenes are supposed to be good. But if you want to see a good movie, go see Godzilla Minus One. If you like Godzilla movies at all, this is a serious Japanese film 
with Godzilla in it. It's it's an interesting movie. They make a lot of interesting choices. The actors aren't quite up to the challenges of the movie, but it's 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 interesting. It's good. It's certainly entertaining. That made thirteen million dollars this week. It's at sixty five million dollars and counting, but it only cost fifteen million dollars to make. You ain't there for the special effects, people. Trust me. But it works. In India, we have the hit film Animal that's opened all over the world. It's a Hindi action film, and it's made $13 million this week. It's about to pass the $100 million mark. Back in China, we have a couple movies, Love, Life, Light, that spooky movie with a nurse who's a heroine uncovering strange goings-on. That made another $12 million this week. And so did the opening of Wolf Hiding which is a Chinese crime drama about a power struggle in a crime syndicate. That made $12 million on its opening week. But in Korea, South Korea, we have 12-12 the day about the 1979 military coup, a sad day in Korean history. That movie is still making $12 million. That's what it made last week, and it's at $63 million and counting. When you look at the Korean top 10, you go from $12 million very quickly to like 300000 400,000, 100,000. There's not a lot going on in Korea right now, but 12, 12 today proves people will show up. They certainly showed up for Hayao Miyazaki. His film, The Boy and the Heron, made another $12 million worldwide. It's by far his biggest hit in North America. He's made $126 million worldwide. It's a great... Uh, career capper for Miyazaki. Maybe there's another movie or short in him, but this is awesome to see. It's really great. It really is a summation of everything he, he loves and cares for and draws upon in his career. So it's, I highly recommend you see that movie in a theater. Another Japanese animated film that's doing well is the Detective Conan series. This is episode number in the series, Black Iron Submarine. I'm not sure what number we're up to, but it's opened up in China. It made $10 million this week. It's at $129 million and counting. Scrolling down the list very quickly for news. A Chinese crime thriller, The Invisible Guest made $9 million. Trolls Band Together is trying to hit $200 million. That universal animated film Migration, that's opening up in North America soon. Good word of mouth, it's holding pretty well in a few tiny territories. That's at $12 million. Uh, Christmas with The Chosen, that's a fathom event drawn from the TV series The Chosen. That made $4.6 million this week. Uh, basically repurposed stuff from the TV show and I think some new material. So uh, they want to make that an annual event. And scrolling down, uh, there's one more thing to talk about. What is it? Uh, where is it? Where is it? Here it is. Night Courier. I could have said the number one film in the country is Night Courier because in Saudi Arabia, the drama about a uh, illicit alcohol ring called Night Courier has opened up in Saudi Arabia. It's in 63 theaters and 121 screens, and it's the number one film in the country beating out Wonka. So in Saudi Arabia, the hottest film in the country right now is their own homegrown movie, Night Courier. About 13% of movie releases are homegrown, but they account for like 36% of the box office. So there is a hunger to see yourself on screen, and we can see that reflected in Saudi Arabia. I remember you saying you were surprised that a movie about illegal alcohol selling was, was uh, made it to the movie theaters, but there you are. Did the bad guys have to uh, yeah, suffer I mean, in the end? You know, did like the old uh, movie codes that we had here in America? Yeah, there, I, I wouldn't say that the, that there's a big, you know, penance to pay at the end of the movie, but there is, uh, it, things don't work out so well. Let's yeah, right. just put it that way. And I, I will say, mm -hmm. so I saw this movie in, in it's called Mandub in, uh, I guess, Arabic. And, and there, the word Mandub means uh, somebody who carries something, somebody who is a, you know, delivers something. Uh, and like a courier or it, like a donkey? Uh, like a courier. Yeah, okay. sorry. Somebody who, you know, facilitates the, uh, and, uh, I went to the premiere essentially of this film and I'm sitting there. I, and so by the way is I'm sitting right in front of, no, right behind, uh, Baz Luhrmann and we're both kind of uh, the expression on his face and the expression on my face was probably the same, which is all of these stars start showing up and everybody's cheering and, you know, going nuts for all the director and the star. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, who are these? I have no idea who well, they are. Why would this you know? Great. We're seeing the. Yeah. Well, why would you know? Well, of I don't course, know. I wouldn't. Well, but why are you surprised that there are local stars in a country that you're not familiar with? 
I don't understand. Yeah, I'll, I'll say this. Okay. I, I, I was not a big fan of the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't necessarily know that the Western journalists were a big fan of the movie. The Arabic um, journalists and the Arabic audiences loved it. So I think there might be something missing in translation. Are you saying that the subtitles you saw in the screening were not the best, perhaps? Because that happens a lot. No, I just think that it, culturally there, there may have been something missing that we don't understand that is very relevant uh, to, to uh, the audiences in the Middle East. I have two exhibition questions for you. The story about this film in Saudi Arabia said it was in 63 theaters, and then they specified 121 screens. We've stopped talking about per screen average, and we just talk about per theater average because the number of screens and movies on can fluctuate day by day. You know, a movie's a hit. Minute by minute. Minute by minute. Add another screening here, another screening there. Take one away here, take one away there. So when they say a movie opens up on 2,000 screens... Are they taking the 200 theaters and saying there's five screens on a theater and that gets us to 1,000? And then, they, I mean, how are they determining that? Are they talking about the screen count as of the beginning of the weekend? Or, or are they talking about actual hard tops where it's playing? So if it's at a 20 screen multiplex on five screens, does that count as one or does that count as five? So it depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about Comscore, it is now based on hard tops, it's based on an actual location. So that is why many uh, countries will now go towards showtimes. They'll say, yeah, okay, it's great that it's at 4,000 separate locations, separate locations. In one location, it might be on four screens, but it's at 4,000 separate locations. But instead, like in China, they do it by showtimes because there are so many theaters. They just go, hey, you had 150,000 showtimes this week. And that's how you are able to determine like, oh, that Hollywood movie got screwed out of showtimes. They had so few showtimes and you think they're throttling back even if there would be more demand. But here in North America, when we say movie opens up on 2,000 screens, what are we talking about? We're talking about 2,000 movie theater locations with an address that you can mail a letter to. Okay, so it is about, it's about theaters. It's not about screens. It's about hardtops. So if you're at AMC and you've got 20 screens and your movie's on seven of them, that counts as one towards that 2,000 total. Correct. Okay. Um, that said, the reason that, be- the reason that switched, it used to be screens, right. but that was easy because it was like one location, one screen, because right. it was we know all why. 35 we, millimeters. We understand. We understand yeah. why it changed, yes. So my next question is The Boys in the Boat. I have been touting this film. And, you know, you went to see it, and if you didn't come out of it thinking, wow, this looks like an Oscar-type movie, and that's going to really wow people, even if I didn't love it, I should throttle back on my expectations, but I still feel like it's got all the ingredients of an Oscar hopeful. And my brother, who never goes to the movies, just asked me, his friends at his bar were like, where he hangs out, his local, he's like, when's the movie open? And I said, well, actually, there's a preview this Sunday afternoon at a couple theaters, but it opens up on December 24th you know, in the evening. So you can go, well, just tell me when it opens. I'm like, Christmas day. So in the ads for the boys in the boat, it says only in theaters, Christmas day. Why in the love of God, do they not say only in theaters, Christmas Eve, because it opens on December 24th. Why are you fooling people into thinking the movie is not opening up on the day it opens up? Also, the English on, English on that makes it sound like, oh, you know, it's only in theaters on that one day. Then it's yeah. going straight to streaming because we're yeah. Amazon. Yeah, that's another, that's another thing to worry about. Exclusively in theaters on Christmas Eve is what they should be saying. But uh, Starting in, theaters, in yeah. theaters everywhere, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. Don't say New Year's Day. It's opening up on the 24th. You know, they've got to get off that Friday date mentality when movies open up on a Thursday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday or, a, you know, so I just don't get it. Why, doesn't that seem like a big mistake? You're telling people it's uh, not open the day it opens. It is open on New Year's Eve. You're opening all over the country. You want everybody to flock to the movie and you're, you're telling them it's not there. That seems like a mistake to me. You're going to, def- you're going to defend it now, aren't you? No, I, I, I don't know why they don't do it other than to say, uh, I'm They're sure stupid. somebody would, would say, say, hey, that's the way we've always done it, which is always a bad excuse. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and now we've got a bad prediction from the Hollywood Reporter. They say that next year's box office 
We were already worried about this year's box office. We're hoping to hit $9 billion. We've got about 12, 13 days left. Usually every day is like a big box office week because everybody's going to the movies during the holidays. But there are fewer movies coming out this year, and half of them are from Warner Brothers. So there's not a lot of movies coming out, but there's a good mix and a good array of films. But still, we're going to struggle to get another $400 million into the till by December 31st so we can hit $9 billion. So that's already troubled. But the Hollywood Reporter looked ahead and said, everybody is worried about 2024 because of the multiple strikes, because of the delays, because of all the things going on. They believe North American box office will be lower than 2023. Forget getting back to the $11 billion, $10-11 billion we were hoping for. They don't think it's going to hit $9 billion next year. Why? Fewer releases, fewer big releases, and, you know, that's just not happening. In 2019, 120 movies opened up wide release, and that means in 2,000 theaters or more. This year, just about 99. So 20%, you know, just 20 fewer Next year, there's about 82 movies scheduled to open wide in more than 2,000 theaters. That's a like 30% drop in movies. And if you don't put movies out, people can't go to see them. Yeah, it's, I can tell you that people are scaling back their, their spend, their expectations. Why? Uh, in terms of, uh, uh, why would they exactly scale what back? You're saying. No, I mean, uh, the studio is scaling you- back. No, 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 no. The, the people that, you know, like when you're Dolby exhibitors and you, exhibitors and manufacturers and even like Coca-Cola, they're looking at cinema because they're in numerous markets, quick service restaurants, airplanes, cinema, you know, legit theaters, sporting events. They're looking at cinema and going, OK, that's going to be a soft year next year. Let's not put a lot of money into trying to market to cinemas because we know they're going to be down. So. You know, we know that that said 2025, they're all looking at and going, oh, geez, that's going to be a blockbuster year. Now, I will also point out that the people who are saying this Gower Street analytics, uh, they uh, kind of had a suppressed number at the end of 2022 for 2023. And all of those expectations were beat. So that said, they're they're looking at uh, and this just came out today, by the way. This the, these these figures they're looking at about uh, you you said it uh, eight billion dollars right wow uh, you mean for next and year and for next year sorry and seven point nine in China which is up from the seven point six that they're predicting for this year fifteen point six billion internationally for a total of thirty one point five billion and you're right Michael a part of it has to do with the Hollywood blockbusters. Uh, and, and and just Hollywood ro- wide releases, just plump. You know, there's just not a lot of them, right? And we know that there's a lot of movies, mid-sized movies, smaller movies, the knives out of the world that really propel box office and are a big chunk of box office. You need a big mix of movies. You don't just need big wide releases. You need not just huge superhero franchises. You need all types of movies to get people coming to the theater, like the boys in the boat, and. But when you don't have those big blockbusters, you're really way behind. And frankly, I don't know how they'll make $8 billion if they've got, instead of 120 movies, they've got 80 movies coming out. I mean, that, that's, that's like 40% fewer movies, right? 30%, yeah. 40%? I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. That's a huge drop. And you know who to blame for that? Not the writers, not the actors, the studios. They knew how they were screwing up the television season. They knew how they were screwing up the entire year of 2024. But they have a this quarter mentality, a stupid moronic mentality, a you know, save pennies to lose dollars where they didn't want to give in and pay what was reasonable and what they ultimately said, yeah, they weren't really asking for the moon. But yeah, everything had changed and they need to be able to make a living. But instead, they lost hundreds of millions of dollars each, the major studios, and they have screwed up the next four quarters. So a pox on their house. Uh, that's no way to run a business. A, a pox on all five of their houses, which used to be seven. But of course, then there was a merger and then another merger. And now there's going to be another merger because, of course, Paramount is up for sale. We didn't talk about that. Part uh, of the you know. problem. Part of the problem. But the good news is that award season is here. And we finally have a little bit of information from one of the guilds. The producer guild, the producer's Guild, right? Yeah, the Producer Guild of America yeah. has announced the nominees for Best Documentary Film. 
they like to parse it out over the days. They like to get attention every few days. So what are some of the movies? Do you recognize any of them? What are the movies are you excited by about seeing on their list? These, of course, are only American documentaries, so the Oscar pool is a bit broader. Well, okay, we've got 20 Days in Mariupol, which is the Associated Photographer uh, sorry, the Associated Press photographer was trapped in Mariupol when uh, Russia invaded and mm-hmm. he couldn't get out and he documented it is a staggering work. It's unbelievable, especially since he was sending out in real time, having to find connectivity to send those reports out. Uh, <laughs> Something, the maternity- you're like, you can't do it when you're on vacation in Hawaii. This son of a bitch is doing it in Ukraine while he's getting attacked. And he managed to get his story out. I bet he could do a podcast for Mariupol. I, I can't believe it. It's uh, unbelievable <laughs> that he was able to do it. And actually, a good portion of the, not a good portion, but there was this whole segment in the film where he has to go and expose himself to find some form of connectivity so that he could send the report out about the, the uh, this was very early on in the war, uh, the, the maternity hospital being bombed. That was his footage. That mm-hmm. was all his footage. Uh, and it's grueling. It's a grueling very interesting film, American Symphony, uh, and that's the John Batiste film. Well, it's a mm-hmm. film about John Batiste. Beyond Utopia. This is a movie about North Koreans, well, South Koreans, helping people from North Korea escape, and they do it through China, through Vietnam, through. I mean, it, it's uh, it's remarkable. They spend weeks in the jungle uh, trying to walk around and get get into. South Korea, uh, the disappearance of Cher Height, uh, which About I have not seen. Feminist. It's a, the the well known feminist and how she uh, a sex expert and did a lot of research and helped break down a lot of barriers and then sort of disappeared from a view. Whereas the Kinsey Report is uh, still very prominent and that name rolls off your well the reasons of why and the prejudice and the gender uh, prejudice against her, which is part of the story about what's going on there. Uh, the Mother of All Lies, which is this documentary about, I'm surprised uh, uh, Four Daughters isn't on, uh, on here as well. Uh, Four Daughters is about uh, a family where two of the daughters went off and kind of became ISIS members. Uh, the Mother of All Lies is about, uh, I want to say Algeria, uh, but it's a, a kind of a hybrid documentary. Smoke Sauna Sisterhood is about... It's an Estonian documentary about women sitting in a sauna talking about what it's like to be a woman in that country. That's literally what the movie's about. And I was watching it. It was at Sundance last year. I was watching it. This was one of the films I was watching at home. And my family's walking back and forth and in and out of the room. They're like, what's going on with all these old naked women in this, in this movie that you're watching? They're just walking around. It's part like, of my oh, job. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Hey. Uh, squaring the circle. This is a movie you'd like. Uh, it's about yeah. uh, the story of hypnosis. It's uh, not hypnosis. H i p g n o s i s. It is about oh. the design firm that made all of these amazing album covers mm-hmm. for rock albums over the years. So that that that's uh, who the PGA has nominated for best documentary. Wow, I did not expect you to have a full review of every film. That's amazing. Congrats to you for staying on top of documentary films. Four Daughters is, of course, probably not eligible for the PGA because I don't think any of the producers are members of the PGA. So you you know it's a you have to be in Good the point. PGA in order to be nominated for it. Uh, so that's very interesting. But yeah, those can actually have an impact on the Academy Awards because those are people who will vote for the Academy Awards. Uh, I don't know if he is an Academy member, but we just have news about Jonathan Majors talking about our social justice section. Uh, he was just found guilty in court of some of the charges in harassment. Um, these are all misdemeanors. He was not found guilty in the most serious charge of assault. Uh, and he was also found not guilty of a minor charge of, uh, it's called a violation. That's like the most minimal charge. I don't believe they have sentencing yet. So it's not the best news for uh, him. Uh, it is vindication for his, uh, the person who came forward and was brave. But it's not necessarily the worst news for him because he wasn't found guilty of assault. Uh, where we end up in he terms of He was found of guilty co- of reckless assault. Right, right. But, reckless but, but, assault. Yeah, that's a misdemeanor. 
Uh, it's different from from us, uh, you know. It's just different. So it's it's not as uh, you know. It's it's a misdemeanor, and that's not that it's not serious. But there were more severe charges that he might have been found guilty of, but he was not. So where this ends up in terms of his reputation and the text messages that came out and uh, all that stuff, we'll have to see where it ends up. Uh, it, it's a murky situation for a studio. You know, the guy has not been uh, found guilty of the worst thing in the world, but he ain't innocent. And so what are they going to do with him? What are they going to do with the Marvel movies and their big bad villain? Uh, that's something the studios will have to uh, figure out down the road. But now at least they have a legal ruling that they can act on. Until that happens, unless 100 people come forward to accuse you and you believe they're valid, there's really not any, you know, you can't really do much. It's difficult, but you have to say, oh, well, but you know what? Most people don't get accused of assault. So it's not usually a problem for most people. But uh, it's ugly, uh, but it's serious, and it's a big deal because he went to court and he lost. Well, if that's a big deal, and of course it is, I wonder what you think of some of our stories this week in Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. I knew if, if I, again, if I could place bets on what I think Michael will say, hey, that we should, we should cover this story. I knew that you would cover at least two of these stories this week. I almost didn't. One, I almost didn't, but there you go. Okay, well, the first one, it's just when you thought the game show Jeopardy had put all those controversies behind it. The producers managed to screw up one more time. Actor May- Mayim Bialik was co-hosting the show. You might recall we covered it endlessly. She was co-hosting with all-time winner Ken Jennings. He did the first half of the season, and she did the second half. She did Celebrity Jeopardy in prime time and the college tournaments. He handled other tournaments. It was a Solomon-like solution that satisfied, well, you know, uh, nobody. It didn't satisfy anyone. Then the writer's strike took place. Bialik, who of course is an actress, uh, and by the way, also starred in the sitcom Call Me Cat for the last three years, she refused to cross the picket lines in solidarity with the WGA. Ken Jennings, being, you know, Ken Jennings, would cross the picket line and did, continuing to host the show while it used recycled competitors and questions until the strike was over. Maybe that was the last straw? Needless to say, the producers, and really it's the network, you know, it's the network here, uh, apparently dumped her via letter. Bialik posted a polite online announcement saying that she'd been told, bye bye Sony has informed me that I will no longer be hosting the syndicated version of Jeopardy, Bialik wrote on Instagram. I am incredibly honored to have been nominated for a primetime Emmy for hosting this year, and I am deeply grateful for the opportunity to have been a part of the Jeopardy family. At least she was professional about it. It was uh, one final classless move by producers in a decade filled with them. Big deal or big whoop? Well, I almost didn't cover it because I thought people were sick of it and didn't care that much. But, you know, uh, they were treating her poorly. And I thought that's not fair because I haven't been a fan of hers for numerous reasons in terms of being a host of this show and her personal uh, uh, stuff that she promotes online, like memory pills. But anyway, they dumped her and they were classless about it. It's terrible. You know, they just like you get together with someone and you say, how would you like to handle this? This is what we've done. But how how do you want to go about it? So, you know, you're given as much dignity as possible. They didn't do any of that. They seem to just like send her a telegram like, yeah, you're out. (laughs) It's like, really? And like, yeah, we will hope to work with her in the future. Not if you fire her by letter, you don't. And like, why would they not keep her for Celebrity Jeopardy? I haven't seen anything about the ratings that indicate they would drop when she would host the syndicated show. Everything seemed to be fine in those terms. Uh, are they going to cancel Celebrity Jeopardy? Are going to let LeVar Burton do it? Uh, but this is just really tactless, really unnecessary self-wounding. Uh, Ken Jennings crossing the strike line, I didn't like that either. I thought that was the wrong thing for him to do. That's why I took that dig at him. Uh, so I'm well, not wait, happy Wait here. a second. I, I would just like to point out a, a couple things uh, regarding the strike. So the game shows are under... I understand that. They're under contract. a different... Yes, nonetheless. That Nonetheless, said, a lot said, of people, yeah. That said, so Jeopardy... Films on the Sony Studios lot. And because of that, no matter what, what contract you're under, uh, you would have to cross those picket lines. Right. And that's why there was all of this like non-struck production that wound up being struck because they were 
striking outside the studio and it was like you know that's yeah what, that's my what guild picket is lines in, are for yeah. yeah that's what picket right. lines are for not just to set down certain shows as much as possible yeah so uh, that was a shame that he did that i think that was a mistake i think he has improved as a host i watched the show very regularly uh i still think his humor is terrible and he's got a little bit of a hitting down problem but he's fine he's decent it's certainly no problem for them at this stage she uh, consistently had trouble with the answers. You see a lot of the comments in a New York Times article about this. There was a millisecond of a hesitation before she'd say yes or no or correct them. And it just was a constant like, it's just taking an inch of an inch too long and she's had long enough to grow into it that it should have been smoother. But it felt like this little, she's always just not quite in the rhythm, not quite jumping on it quite as smoothly and quickly as she should have. And it was an issue for me and I thought, oh, I'm prejudiced against her. Uh, And I'm not, I don't care about woman or man for sure, but I'm not a fan of hers. And I thought, well, I just don't like her. But no, a lot of people uh, talked about that, that she just wasn't in the rhythm of the game. Uh, so that would have been a reason to sort of gently ease her out maybe, but I don't know why you don't keep her for celebrity jeopardy. Now you're going to need someone else. Ken Jennings, I guess can do that too, but just, uh, just an unnecessary self wounding. You, you brought her in under difficult circumstances. She delivered for them and they've, you know, burned that bridge and treated her poorly. So uh, what a screw up for them yet, yet again. Well, Michael, I know you love to geek out over this next story. Every year, the Library of Congress names 25 new films to the National Film Registry. They're culturally significant, not necessarily the best films of all time. So you'll find everything from like home movies by a Filipino family to Home Alone. And a short from 1925 showing how movies are made to Apollo 13. A Hollywood film about how space travel is produced by NASA. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? And of course... (gasps) It is to Michael. We know that it's a big deal to Michael, but what do you think? Well, like all of us, I immediately look at the list and look for the movies I like or don't like. I say, why is that on the list? You know, even for cultural reasons, uh, you know, like I don't think 12 Years a Slave has stood up well at all. It's been 10 years since the movie came out. I think they have to wait at least 10 years. And I think, really? You know, that's just not, they have Spike Lee's fifth film on the registry. Bamboozled is now on the list. I'm a good admirer of Spike Lee. She's got to have it. Yes. Malcolm X. Yes. Four little girls. Yes. Uh, maybe some other, but bam, do the now right we're thing. down to, do, yeah. Oh, I mean, of course, do the right thing. That's number one. But my God, bamboozled, like maybe, you know, you could go farther afield. On the other hand, The Nightmare Before Christmas, absolutely. Terminator 2, sure. Maitwan, a great John Sayles film. John Sayles has sort of fallen off the radar a bit in terms of importance, but he's a terrific director. And in this era of union activity, Maitwan is a terrific movie for people to revisit. Uh, but what I really like to do is scroll through and try to find stuff I've never seen before and check them out. So there's some cool stuff like the Filipino family home movies. I couldn't find that online yet, but I'll keep Keep looking. A woman's prison documentary called We're Alive. Uh, Alambrista, a 1977 film, a, a fictional film about migrant farm workers from Mexico. That looks terrific. So, uh, yes, I've seen Fame. I've seen Desperately Seeking Susan. That, too, seems like a bit of a stretch. But I'll keep checking out the movies I've never heard of or never seen, like the avant-garde movie, which seems unavailable, called The Lighted Field from 1987. I'd love to check that out. But the main thing I want to say is they do 25 films a year year i think maybe they should now they've been doing this for a number of years they've added a lot of films i want it to feel like every film is unquestionably deserving maybe they should dial back to 10 for a while i love it when they throw a broad net and pull in stuff like film shorts and uh you know stuff that is not just movies released in theaters for consumption like the family movies like the short about how movies are made that's where they can do a lot of great work highlighting the little known stuff maybe they should dial back on so many big hollywood movies because you know maybe 10 years isn't long enough maybe they should wait 20 years well i know you said michael that it was a short uh or a, a kind of a slow news week so that does wrap up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Michael, we could have spent the entire episode talking about this one story because, as you know, streamers face a lot of battles. They, keeping subscribers happy while not letting subscribers share their passwords 
far and wide. That's one of their big struggles now. Rising costs for original series. Oh, and unless you're Netflix, trying not to lose too much money, okay? <laughs> and if you're Amazon, you also have to deal with people ripping off the most expensive TV series in history. That's that Lord of the Rings, remember? We we just mm-hmm. learned that the streamer and the Tolkien estate won a frivolous lawsuit and their own lawsuit against an author. Uh, this author wrote a sequel to the Lord of the Rings called The Fellowship of the King. He may as well have just like immediately gone to court, published it, and then gone straight to court because that's where he was going to find himself. Uh, he planned six sequels and then sued Amazon for ripping off his ideas with their TV show. They all went to court, and guess what? The author lost. That's what I love. This guy, this guy, this guy sued them. He immediately published the book and said, hey, they've ripped off my idea with this TV series. He sued them. So dumb. I mean, he didn't wait for them to sue him. He's like, you're suing me. It's like, it's not in the public domain by any stretch of the imagination. What are you doing? So he lost and deservedly so. But the cojones on that guy, my goodness. Well, another good news, uh, Netflix turned the anime series One Piece into a live action smash, and now they're adapting it into an anime series. But really, wait, uh, wait, not everything, by the way. Wait, 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 what? One Piece is one of the most popular, ongoing, and extent, there's like 500 plus episodes of One Piece, and they're now going to turn this live action show into an anime series. What could be less necessary than that? I think they've lost their mind. The show is a big enough challenge. I thought they were going to say a stage production, uh, you know, a musical, uh, a feature film spinoff. No, they're going to turn it into an anime series. I, I question Netflix on this. That just seems like a bizarre, no-win situation. I've been wrong before. The American version of The Office, lots of money, but turning an anime series into a live-action series and then back it's still going on people i don't know what they're thinking well a couple things uh this will be the anime series based on the movie based on the anime series uh (laughs) so you know i always love those kinds of things and secondly obviously they're looking at their own data which they they go hey you know anime is really popular on our on netflix we should we should make more of these shows let's turn that new that new series we did based on an anime series into an anime series yeah well okay (laughs) Uh, not everything is, is so easy. Netflix offered up a historic, unprecedented amount of viewership data, and it raised more questions than it answered. So let's dive in, because this literally, they, they called it a data dump, right? In what A victory of for transparency. This was all anybody could talk about last week. Uh, what do you think about it, Michael? Well, why don't you read the first one, and then I'll tell you what I think. Well, uh, I know that you think it's bollocks. So let, let, let a third party back up the data, which... They, they are, actually, and I'll, we'll get into that. Uh, give us real info, like granular data on who is watching what and for how long. Uh, Netflix says, yeah, that's not happening. Uh, maybe <laughs> advertisers will break the deadlock. And here's the thing. I did not know this until this data. A lot of people didn't know this until this data dump, which I guess I'll just keep calling it a data dump. Nielsen has been working with Netflix for some time now to verify and audit the figures that are being provided to advertisers because the advertisers as you suggest michael are like hey mr fox it's so nice you're telling us how many chickens are in the hen house but (laughs) you know what we'd like to have this guy called nielsen come in and just make sure that like you're you're you know on the up and up here so they've actually been doing that now the agreement was hey nielsen you can do that and you can actually have like a live feed and everything but you can't tell anybody about it. You can only tell the advertisers. Right. And that's, that's what's happening there. Now, uh, well, I'll let, you, I'll let you, you get into your thoughts here, but uh, there's, there's a lot to discuss. Well, first of all, there's no real transparency. Explain what that means. Well, they're, they're basically, it's all an aggregate. It's a six-month window. It's uh-huh. a six-month window. Uh, and you know, they're sharing what they really want to share. And that's, here's what I mean by that. They've got a whole bunch of shows that all have a hundred thousand views. Why? Because they rounded up for that time period. This is January 1st to June 30th. They said, okay, if you didn't have a hundred thousand views, we'll round up to a hundred thousand views. And we're not going to tell you about any shows that had under 50,000 views. So it's only a snapshot in time. Uh, and it just offers up 
total hours watched. It doesn't say 600 people watched it. It just says total hours. So did one person watch it again and again and again and again and again to, you know, it's, I don't know. There's other reasons that this isn't useful. Right. They, they, they break it. Why it is useful. They break shows down into seasons. So you can add it up and get the f- total hours watched for a TV series or a property, a property rather than just an individual season. That was a little weird, uh, but it's useful, but they should have both in there. Uh, and like you say, they offer up total hours watched rather than many other more interesting variables that would be revealing. And I don't think we should be grateful for half a loaf or in this case, half of a half of a loaf that they want identify well uh you know i have to say ted sarandos got out front of this um initially they didn't want to offer up data for numerous reasons uh and one of them was they didn't want to like kind of give a roadmap to competitors hey here's what works on streaming and here's what doesn't work so i get it now every network has done this for 70 years we've had tv ratings for everybody transparent and open that's like saying you don't want to reveal your box office data because you don't want to trick you know you don't want to give your competitors an in it's like no they only did it because they wanted to keep actors and directors and writers from demanding more money when they could see they had a really big hit on their hands well, there's the reasons that they say they're doing this, right? I also think there's the reasons they haven't said that, they're, that they've finally released some of this data. Here's some of the reasons I think they haven't, that they're not talking about. The fact that now that there is, first of all, they're going to have to, because of the guild contracts, they're going to have to release some of this data anyway. And rather ha- than have it leak out, they may as well just put it out there themselves. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that they're not saying that they kind of alluded to. Uh, there's that. One, it's a snapshot in time. They're not saying that, you know, here's how many people ever watched The Office on, on Netflix. But if they do it every also, six months, we'll be able to add it up. Yes. Also, let, let's, and I was going to get to this part, uh, 25% of their content is being watched by um, somebody called Nobody. <laughs> it's like Netflix, they, they say that, you know, about 20% of all titles didn't even reach that 150,000 hour mark, uh, which is what they were kind of, you know, and that's from January to June, 2023. Uh, and that's with worldwide subscriber base of 238 million people. They have 25%, I think it was when, when somebody added it up on, uh, I think it was uh, The Verge. They, they said, hey, yeah, 25% aren't even accounted for. Here. Well, now let's put look that in another way. First of all, you think well, 150,000 hours. That sounds like a lot. Well, it's not actually. If when you have 238 million subscribers worldwide, never mind that there are multiple people on each subscription, probably. Um, if just 0.1 percent of all subscribers just sampled an hour of a show, I don't mean they watched the whole season. They just watched an hour of of a show. It would hit 238,000 hours. So. They're not even clicking on it. Uh, so that's, that's really, but when you say, well, one out of four didn't even become a hit. Guess what? One out of four TV, three out of four TV shows are not hits. Three out of four movies are not hits. That's, that would be a really, that's a really good track record. If, one, if three out of four of the shows you launch actually register in some way, shape, or form, that's pretty darn good. So acting like this is horrible metric, it's not. Flip it around. It's actually, yes, it's a very low bar, but most of their shows are hitting it. 75% of all their shows are hitting this bar, whether required or original, uh, they're doing it. So that's actually a good thing. That's not revealing uh, a disaster. That's revealing pretty good track record. That's why the bar is so low. So they can say 75% of all our shows are getting some attention. Yeah. And I, I, what's interesting to me is I, I think, uh, you know, some of the creators had no idea about this information. I mean, they were, they were making... Well, we knew that. Their, we knew that. We knew they've yeah. never told them anything. Even the most famous people making the biggest deals are told nothing. Yeah. Um, I also think uh, they had, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, oh, licensed content versus uh, original programming. Licensed content mm-hmm. accounted for 45% of all viewing. And original content, 55%. I think a lot of people thought that was going to be flipped, that it would be 55% licensed content with things like Suits, although this isn't the summer of Suits. So keep in mind that Suits comes after this time period. But with The Office and Friends and all of these shows that they licensed, uh, you know, I think people assumed that most of the stuff on Netflix that's watched is from the big studios and the big networks. 
Yeah, Gilmore Girls and nope. Grey's Anatomy are on the charts every week in acquired content, and right. they're often in the top 10 as well, especially when a new season is happening. So when you look at shows that are dormant or not getting any views in the six-month period, you also have to think, were new episodes coming out? Is it a sort of an older show? Like, why would you watch... I don't know, the one day at a time remake during the six months. You know, if a show's been dormant and they're not promoting it, it's not going to get a lot of attention. But you can see old movies suddenly jumping up the charts when Netflix decides to promote it. If a new season of a show happens or they find some reason to promote it, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, one reason uh, the One Piece anime series, Netflix wants their own, that's because they know they're driving viewers to Hulu and Disney Plus where the original One Piece series is still ongoing and you can watch all those seasons. So people watch the live action show and then they say, I'm going to go check out the original anime. And that's 500 episodes and they're gnashing their teeth over the fact that all those people are going to Hulu. It's like, relax. You know, it's it happens. You decided to remake it. So tough. Making your own anime series just to combat that. Not a good idea. But again, like yeah, you said, with the, the with the failure rate for like, oh, one out of four shows aren't registering at all. That means 75 percent are. Most of their activity is coming from original content, in part because, of course, they have a built-in reason to promote it. But it's still a significant amount, and it still shows them striking the right balance or doing well with their original content. So more power to them. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you think Netflix will ever license content to the other, the other services? Probably, Probably not. You suggested they should. We thought one day at a time was the perfect show. I could have gone into syndication on TV land or Nick at night. It seemed like an ideal show to stretch out to five years. I had critical acclaim. Seemed like package that through one day at a time. You got an hour long block. There's still money to be made on eyeballs and syndication and on fast channels and, and, uh, and, and all sorts of other stuff. So I thought there was money to be had in that show and that they should have said, look, this is a show that could work in syndication. We've got three seasons. Not that many episodes. We can get it to 70 or 80 episodes pretty easily. Uh, but they have no interest in that, just like they have no interest in box office and no interest in live sports. Not nothing. No Except for the, sports. well, no, no, no. Don't, don't you know there's all that live sports they're now doing? But they're kind of creating their own sports. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, we're not interested in live sports. We're going to create the sport that we're interested in. <laughs> it's like, what is the Netflix slam? Yeah, licensing is not but some people are, unfortunately, as we come to the end of the year. Stage director Michael Blakemore died at 95. He's marvelous. He was almost the head of the National Theater in the K. He was almost the head of the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company. He got sort of screwed out of both of them. But he did have a marvelous career as a director. Uh, his many accomplishments, Michael Blakemore is the only person to win the Tony Award for directing the best musical and the best play in the same year. About 10 people have done that over the history of the Tony Awards. He's the only one to do it in the same year. He did it in the year 2000 when he was lauded Fizzy Revival of Kiss Me Kate with Brian Stokes Mitchell and his work on the brilliant drama Copenhagen by playwright Michael Finn. Other works that he helmed included A Day in the Life of Joe A., which I have never seen, Laurent Olivier in Long Day's Journey into Night, David Ayer's first play, Knuckles, Angela Lansbury's last Tony winner, a revival of Live Spirit, the noirish musical comedy City of Angels, I believe you've seen, and yeah. many more, including numerous other plays by Michael Frayn, like Democracy and the comedy classic Noises Off. You liked City of Angels, right? I'm waiting for the revival of that. I did kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, well, I've never seen it. I've always been intrigued by the fact Sort of was a hit and then disappeared forever. But Noises Off was one of my great theatrical experiences of all time. I saw it in London at the original cast. I was a kid. My mom and I went in. It was such a hot day in London by London standards. Almost no one had air conditioning. But they had air conditioning in this theater. That's not why I went there. But we went to a matinee. A woman came in, sat down, fell asleep. And this is one of the noisiest plays of all time. I mean, it's hilarious. People are roaring with laughter, and it only gets louder over the three. I mean, roaring with laughter. It's the funniest stage play I've ever seen. At the end of the she doesn't stir the entire show. At the end of the show, it ends. The curtain rises, stands up, and applauds. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. It's just bizarre. But another person dying is Dr. Andre Brower. He died at the age of 61. Countless Emmy nominations for work in TV shows, movies, and miniseries. His first film was in Grey, co-starring Denzel Washington and Matthew Broderick. And he pulled off the rare feat of starring in an acclaimed drama, namely the career-making Hamas, 
Life on the Street, and in a very good comedy, Brooklyn Nine-Nine with my friend Andy Samberg, uh, who's going to be missed, right? Yeah, that was a, a big shock. Uh, and speaking of things that got a lot of play on streaming, Brooklyn Nine-Nine was saved by streaming. And, you know, we, you just mentioned, hey, you know, going from streaming to TV. Look, Yellowstone, right? Made for streaming and now is on... Or no, actually. Yeah, the, the, the reruns are... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and like, yes. Homicide was a great show. I was always a Hill Street Blues guy that came later, but it's that vein of what, some of the great TV cop shows of all time, just great dramas in general. But finally, uh, you know how they talk about the fifth Beatle? You've heard of that fifth Beatle? Who's the fifth Beatle? Maybe it's Yoko Ono or producer George Martin or musician Billy Preston, who was the only person, I think, to be credited on a Beatle song. Uh, anyway, when it comes to the Beach Boys, there were five Beach Boys. And if there was a sixth Beach Boy, who's the sixth Beach Boy? That would definitely be musician Jeffrey Foskett. He died at the age of 67 as a kid. He was obsessed with the band. I think he heard Ag uh, Ag around, around and just became obsessed with the band. And he was set on meeting Brian Wilson. This was in the 1970s when Brian was pretty reclusive. Just me, Jeff. And in 1976, he was nobody, and he knocked on Brian Wilson's door. Brian said, hey, come on in. And they around, played some music, and they became friends. Three years later, Mike Love, who always had a contentious relationship with Brian and others, he heard Foskett's and hired them to back him on tour when he was doing Beach Boys-style tour. So that led to years of him touring with the Beach Boys. And then when Jeff took the place of Carl Wilson, when Carl went solo briefly, then Carl came back and Jeff thought, oh, God, they're going to fire me. And they kept him anyway because he could hit those fiddles like nobody else. Then in the 90s, Brian Wilson came back to life creatively and he asked Jeff for help. And Jeff worked with him, pulled together a backing band, and he really created an environment for Brian Wilson to record some of the more acclaimed music of his career and really get back in front of us enjoy live performances and they went touring all over the world ultimately playing shows to celebrate albums like of course pet sounds he finally recorded the complete smile album a lost masterpiece it was a triumph and he went back and forth between the beat boys and brian solo kept the music alive introducing them to new generations he was the only one who could sort of bridge that divide that there was in the band and john stamos who was a huge yeah. Boys fan. He became friends with Jeff early on, back when Stamos was a heartthrob on General Hospital, but secretly wanted to play drums for the Beach Boys. And we've got a link in our show notes. He has a very touching tribute to Jeff in Rolling Stone. It's well worth listening to. And every Fockett, a musician's musician, as they say, uh, everybody in the know is really going to miss him. Well, just a, a tremendous talent who has some very good songs by the way, but boy, the work he did with the Beach Boys, keeping that music alive, really helping them capitalize on that endless summer resurgence that the band had and becoming a big train act and Brian Wilson creatively. It's a, it's a special place in Beach Boys lore. Well, you know, uh, I was going to talk about Smile, but, you know, it's been a slow news week, so maybe we try and wrap things up. Uh, in fact, we're wrapping things up for this entire year because this is our last episode for the year. Indeed. Indeed. But not until, uh, what, January 2nd? Our hope, yeah. Well, you know what? Since you don't know when our next episode will be and you don't want to miss it, you should, you should subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. Links to all the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find those ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also uh, follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle, or I guess it's twitter.com since it's now called X. Uh, Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page on Facebook. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, Who is MGMT? And they have that, that new single out, Mother Nature, and we link to it in our show notes as well. Uh, the whole album, they have a new album coming out called Loss of Life. That comes out on February 23rd. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? 
This week, in honor of Mayan Bialik, it's WGA.org. Learn more about the Writers Guild of America. You know, uh, actually, um, just, uh, just so you know that, it, that, that, that domain is taken by the Writers Guild of America. You should, I don't think, is your work going to be found there? Or, you know what? If it's not, yeah, head, over to, head on over to michaelgilts.com then to read some of Michael's work on the entertainment industry. All of it is aggregated there. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next year, play nice. Thank <laughs> you.